Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Finest Hour, a 40k competitive podcast, giving you tips and advice you can use in about an hour. I am your host, Sean Morgan, also known as Abuse Puppy, and with me I have my good podcast host, Shaylin Allen. Greetings. And my evil podcast host, Joshua Death. How you guys doing? Uh, we're doing pretty well, coming back from whole round of big tournaments. It's basically been the end of the season for all of us here, or more or less the end of the season, I think. Josh, how about you? What are you coming out of? Um, actually, uh, getting ready to put a last couple touches on some events coming up this next couple of weeks, and then prepping. I've uh, got three more uh, decently sized events before the final push in LVO. Yeah, we're kind of all coming up on that, that last big push with the new codex coming out and chapter approved and all of that. I'm in holding pattern until chapter approved drops. Well, unfortunately, a lot of us are. I've, yeah, I've noticed that a lot of a lot of even the top players are just kind of running. Even at the bigger events, they're just kind of running weird secondary armies that they just want to mess around with because everyone's kind of just in this holding pattern right now. Now placeholder armies almost. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, I'm running Harlequins, <laughs> pure Harlequins. Yeah, kind of a, a departure from your usual. Oh yeah, yeah. It's yeah, I lost a bet. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> at least they didn't make you play Grey Knights. Right. It's the best way to choose your tournament army. <laughs> well, uh, that's as maybe for right now. But I think once chapter approved and all that comes down, a lot of people are going to be looking to a subject that is pretty fundamental to things. It's uh, writing a new army list, which is what we're talking about this week. Oh, excellent. Yes. Uh, a lot of people are going to have to, I think, significantly rewrite their armies come chapter approved. There's been a bit of pessimism about the whole subject, but, uh, you know, it. I think it really is going to make some significant changes. No one really believed it last year, but chapter approved last year totally reshuffled things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it uh, it's really amazing how much just the two major FAQs and the chapter approved that has come out just in the one year that we've been looking at uh, the the 8th edition out, how much those events have completely changed the game every single time they hit. Yeah. Well, and chapter approved is guaranteed to this year because it's got the Beta Sisters Codex in there, and that's a codex drop. Yes, although we'll see how much that actually affects things. Right. But... One way or another, Chapter Approved is going to change things, whether it's the points changes, any updates to the rules in Errata, or the Sisters Codex itself. Uh, that something in there is going to change the way things are. And a lot of people were, you know, not to throw shade at uh, Nick Nanavati or the guys in Best in Faction or any of that, are saying, like, oh, a points change won't solve this army. Well, depends on how big of a points change it is. Yeah. True. Malefic Lords didn't change at all, except for going up 50 points, and... And it completely stopped them in their tracks. It completely stopped them, and it really overturned the way that Smite was being used in the meta. Yep. yep. I think we're all looking forward to Chapter Approved here and getting to rewrite our army lists, but why don't we buckle down and talk a little bit about how it is that you actually go about writing an army list. Uh, specifically, we're talking here about writing an army list from scratch. You're, you're starting out fresh and new, not just sort of taking the army list you've been running for a number of months, and you want to put something together 
that is going to be able to compete in a high-level event or even just get you a, a good placing at such an event. Well, where, do, where do you start out? What, how do you do that? I start out by downloading a tool like Battlescribe to make my life not hell. Yes. And admittedly, everyone has their own way of doing that sort of thing. Uh, I, I personally have also switched over to Battlescribe. Josh, what about you? What do you, what do you use? I use Battlescribe as well. <laughs> so it's actually a twofold process for me. Whenever I, if I'm just like list hashing, especially in the beginning stages of doing a list, um, I will use Battlescribe almost exclusively for that. And then uh, when I finally like narrow down to a list that I think I wanna, I wanna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start playtesting and running, then I, I take the codex and I go through the list with the codex and make sure that everything is legit non-point and right and, and working because you know every now and then you have those like war gear issues or unit composition issues that Battlescribe will let through or not let through and yeah. sometimes the book is a little different so I use Battlescribe to really kind of get the the shell I guess mm -hmm. of my of my list and then once I get to the point where I'm about to put it on the table I just verify it with the codex and then obviously when I finally get to the point where I've got a final version it's the same thing I I really go through it with the fine-tooth fine comb with the codex, and I also write all my lists by hand, too. I prefer not to use Battlescribe when I submit a list to a tournament. Interesting. I actually will. I, let me rephrase that. When I say write it by hand, I, I, type, the, I type it up yeah. in a format, and I print that out, and it's not the Battlescribe format just because I've, I've gotten to the point now whenever someone hands me their, code, their, their list, if I see all this, all the extra stuff that Battlescribe prints on, it actually is a little cumbersome at times when all I'm looking for is what are the units? What are their points? What extra, you know, what are the upgrades that they paid for them? Other than that, I don't want to see anything else because at that moment in time, all I'm wanting to see is what's in the list. Right. Yeah. So I kind of, I prefer to give the, my opponents that same thing. So yeah. it's kind of the route I've, I've gone, uh, I'd probably say since uh, about winter of last year, it's kind of been my standard format now and I actually really prefer it and I like it. And that's kind of the way I've been running. Uh, you know, uh, I have an art background, I got an art degree, so the Battlescribe output is just visually unwieldy. You and, cannot use and, it. And let's be fair to Battlescribe here. Um, you can make it not look horrific. That's true. It's just that most people don't do that. Uh, there's, there's a great uh, tutorial on the BCP... Uh, Best Coast Pairings Facebook page yeah. on how to make Battlescribe output something that is readable to your opponent. Uh, but I think we're talking more about making lists than presenting lists here. And, and for that, I personally find Battlescribe very useful because it allows you to sort of work through different versions and whatnot. But a lot of people do use just text editors or spreadsheets or whatnot. It's really just a matter of what you're most comfortable working with. Hmm. There's no right right or wrong answer as long as the points work out in the end. Right. So so let's talk a little bit about how you're how you're putting the list together. Uh, for me, at the very least, the first thing you have to decide when you're writing an army list is what's your goal. You know, it's what's your personal goal because you you have to decide what it is that you want to do when you're writing that army list. Uh, I know Shay Lin always starts with, I want the best Grey Knights list I can write. <laughs> because she wants to play Grey Knights. And, you know, obviously that's a thing you can do. But there's certainly other goals you might have as well. If you, maybe a particular faction, or the best list you can build with the models you have available, 
or the best possible list you can build in the format, or the best list of a particular type, like a melee or shooting list or whatnot. There's a lot of different goals, and understanding what your goal for the army is, I think, is the very first place you have to start with an army. Yeah. Um, it, it's basically, what's my intention here? Which is a lot of how you play 40k. What are you trying to do? Mm -hmm. um, is very helpful. And uh, and as Sean pointed out, I do play the crap out of Grey Knights, and I understand that's a pretty heavy description to put on myself. Right, but there's nothing wrong with that as long it, as, as you're long as clear. As long as I acknowledge that that's a restriction, and that's what's keeping me out of the 4-2 category, for sure. Right, and some people prefer to play uh, what they might call counter-metal lists, or, uh, you know, lists that they have designed themselves, things that are non-standard for the game, and that's fine too, but understand that the more restrictions you put on yourself, the more difficult it is going to be to design a truly competitive list, if your goal is to do as well as possible. Um, if you decide that I am only going to play with Slanash Demons, well, that's a pretty significant restriction you're inflicting on yourself, because not only are you cutting out all your Slanashy allies, but you're also cutting out all of your other uh, allies from other demonic gods and all that sort of thing. So... Knowing what it is you want and what is you're willing to accept is going to be a pretty important part of deciding how it is, what kind of list you're going to put together and how it will function. Exactly. And what, what units, units change uh, uh, strength and availability to yourself based on these restrictions as well. Right. So once you kind of decided what your your goal as a player is, then you need to figure out what your list is trying to do. Uh, if you decided that you are going to play, for example, Shaylin's Grey Knight Army, then you need to figure out what it is your list is trying to do and what's it, what it is trying to maximize. Because all lists are probably going to be trying to maximize something. You want to be the best you can be at whatever it is you're doing. Um, and, and finding out what that something is, is one of the early steps of list design. Yes. Yep. No, there, there's a, a lot of different qualities that you can look to be sort of emphasizing in a different list. Um, some lists are going to try and bring as much shooting as they can. Others are going to bring as much resilience or are going to try and make the best use out of some particular trick or stratagem or combo. But knowing where it is that your list is starting and what it is it wants to do is kind of the before you even get to designing a list step. And we've talked a lot about this. I, I want to talk about actually building the list itself, and I want to hand it off to Josh because he's been real quiet. <laughs> no, it's honestly, you guys have been hitting a lot of the main key points, and it's it's a lot of good information. I really didn't have anything to extra to add into that. Um, the the one thing I, I will definitely add, and and this is more just my own personal experience, is over the years, one of the one of the list concepts that you mentioned, Sean, that uh, I always used to really gravitate towards back in the day are the term I've I've grown to use is uh, what's called a gimmick list, mm. and it's where you know you have a list that that it's 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 very 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 skewed towards this one thing, whatever this one thing is, it does that one thing exceptionally well, and it's that thing. Um, a prime example was back in seventh edition. Uh, there was the 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 Harlequin Freak Show list, which was the no. <laughs> the all massive leadership manipulation and try and pretty much run you off the table with you know yes leadership and morale. 
And it was a it was a gimmick. That is a gimmick because if I went against an army that I could utilize that that gimmick against, mm-hmm. it was an amazing amazing boon. But if I happened to go against an army that didn't care about that gimmick or didn't worry about that gimmick, it was pretty much a guaranteed loss. Right. There's there's this concept of these gimmick lists, and and they're they're all out there. Uh, not one that I personally think is a gimmick list is the triple vault list. Yep. The the triple the Necron uh, uh, Tezrek vault triple vaults. It's it's a gimmick list. That is what it is. If you happen to go against an army that is not able to deal with the gimmick you're bringing, the three vaults you're pretty much going to win. But if you do, it's almost an it's it's almost an impossible win for you. And so I my earlier career and my earlier uh, days of playing, I really gravitated towards those style lists a lot. I've learned over the last probably year, year and a half, I seem to be leaning more towards just good, solid lists. And what I mean by that is you know, you start looking at it's almost like a checkbox. It really is. I have a I have a checklist that I go down. Can my army do this? Can it do this? Can it do this? Can it do this? And there's these things on there. And if I can't check one of those boxes off, I then have to ask myself, okay, is it okay to leave this box unchecked because I'm compensating somewhere else, or do I need to change the list to be able to check that box? And and that's something that I've really seemed to and, and obviously my performance has changed pretty much a, a pretty good amount over the last couple of years my my performance in events has actually improved pretty dramatically and i think a part of that is i've steered more away from these gimmick lists more towards just well-rounded good lists and uh and eighth edition was a huge huge uh advent to that as well because i think eighth edition really really uh supports that well-rounded good list concept yeah. yeah, we'll actually probably come back around to those checkboxes, because I think those are checkboxes are kind of things that everyone needs to look at. For sure. Yep. The the gimmick list, as you talk about, I think that's interesting. Um, I've typically heard those lists, it's like, you know, you can call it gimmick. I've also heard imbalanced Yeah. Uh, yeah. or skewed are common terms. Um, those are lists that weight themselves very heavily towards doing one of the things on those checkboxes. So, you know, the the Tesseract, the triple Tesseract list is really, really good at dealing out mortal wounds, and it is very, very resilient, and it kind of doesn't have anything else going for it. Um, And you can certainly do that when you're building a list, but you need to understand what it is you're... Sacrificing. Yes, because um, that's what list building's about is balance yeah, and you, and picking and choosing your battles, so to speak. Well, because you're everything you do in list writing, because you have a finite number of points. Everyone gets the same number, hopefully. Um, mm-hmm. But you are going to have to choose what it is you buy with those points and how you invest them into various jobs. And the points that you spend on buying units that are very resilient are points that you don't get to spend on buying units that have a lot of firepower in most cases. If you have a unit that is both very resilient and very good firepower and also very good scoring and very good melee, then what you have is a broken unit, and that's probably going to get removed from the game or changed in price. Exactly. This yeah, they've where been very building... good about that, this edition. Well, yes, and, this is, and that's where, like, you know, you... Certainly take advantage of those units while they exist, but be aware that they're going to go away pretty soon. Yes. Okay, so here's a a thing that I think a lot of people can struggle with and that I think is important to touch on how we each go over. This is finding inspiration. 
how it is, how do you come up with a list idea? Because that's sort of the eternal question that everyone asks artists and creators is how do you come up with your ideas? And it's a pretty hard question to answer because it's there's not always a single obvious source. So, you know, where where do you get each of your ideas? Shailen, what's 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 your source? So my source is I do these meditative kind of physical walk things where I just think through kind of free think for an hour and come back. And then I if I have a list idea or something, I just kind of jot it down, even if it's this half formed, grammatically incorrect piece of something. And I can look at that later and go, well, OK, A, what the hell did I write here? B, what am I trying to do with that? And then figure out what the goal is. And when I figure out the goal, I can build a list around that. Another thing I do is... Uh, is I kind of go, well, what if I tried this? And I build a lot of really stupid lists because the exercise of building lists, it's more of rather than finding quality, I just do quantity because I'll find a quality thing in the quantity statistically. Mm -hmm. yep. um, so I try a lot of dumb ideas before I, at least in my conceptual phase, before I even like show them to someone else. Oh, and, for sure. And if I'm struggling to get that thing to work, I go, hey... Other people, how can I get help here? Because that's acceptable, too. Um, or just, like, having post-tournament discussions, like, what what is my goal? How's my goal not being filled? How do I need to change it? Are also inspiration sources for me. Right. Uh, and we'll probably talk a lot more about that in one of our other episodes that we're planning. We're talking about improving a list as opposed mm -hmm. to just writing a list. Uh, but I think it's interesting that you, you, you have a sort of introspective method, mm -hmm. uh, because I'm actually sort of the opposite. I, I tend to be an information gobbler. <laughs> um, I will go out and read all of the army lists I can find on any faction I play and also all the other factions and go out and find what sort of list the top players are using and all that sort of thing and just vacuum up everything I can get there. And then I try and feed that back into... The, my list building process, where it's I look at not just the top list, but also lists that are not expected. It's like, oh, someone did something very interesting with this. Do they have an idea that's worth pursuing there? Uh, because sometimes even the lists that don't win a tournament can have the kernel of an idea that may be good enough for you to win a tournament. Yeah. No, uh, it's more of, I, I'm admittedly trying to make Grey Knights work is my main goal, so I wind up building a lot of stupid lists. Sure. <laughs> Josh, how about yourself? Where do you where do you come up with a list idea from? So, my, my method is actually pretty drastically different, ironically, from both of those. I didn't think it was actually going to be possible that there was going to be three very different takes on this, but I, I guess there is. Yeah. Um, so... For me, most units, just as 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 the units themselves, are all pretty well balanced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, I have I have a Marine Codex. I'm looking at example. I'm looking at the Marines, the Space Marine book, right? I have the Marines, and I have Dark Angels, and I have Blood Angels. Well, a company champion in Dark Angels, Blood Angels, Space Wolves, regular Space Marines, and even the Chaos Space Marines is all pretty much the same guy. It's the same real unit. It's They've got the same basic stat lines, same minor tweaks on war gear here and there, but for the most part, they're the same. And that that's fairly true through a lot of the different codexes, is they all have these general units that all kind of fit these these basic building block roles. So for me, what really defines a what's going to make a list, what's, what's the icing on the cake, per se, or the nail in the coffin, 
is what abilities, stratagems, warlord traits, so on and so forth, is going to set that list apart from other lists that are running the same exact building blocks. And so what I do is I will grab a codex, and I will sit down in front of that codex, and I will literally read, start, I will start right at the very beginning of the, the warlord, the warlord page or the jock, the chapter doctrines page, pretty much right at the end of the unit data sheets. I will read from there all the way through all the relics, warlord traits, psychic powers, all of it, and then go back and do it again. And what I'm looking for is there's always these, it's, it's like this uh, web. Like, have you ever seen one of those, those TV shows where they, they have this map on the board and they have all these strings connected all over the place? That, that's pretty much what my... Yeah, the, the photos and yes. red strings and pins and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah the crazy guy meme. That is exactly that is exactly what I do. Is I and I know it sounds insane, but that's literally I will I get this. Okay, well I've got I like this stratagem. It's really neat. Okay, now what other stratagems, relics, warlord traits, psychic powers, unit abilities connect with that? What what synergizes with that? And then I start looking at okay, well what about other you know? And I get this crazy looking web thing going on. <laughs> what ends up happening is my my goal I guess is. How many, because you never want, okay, I've got this one ability that works with this unit that works with this item. I don't want that. What I want is I've got this one stratagem that works with this unit, this unit, this unit, and this unit, but they work in different ways. They all excel in different ways. So just in case this unit's dead, this stratagem that I really liked isn't dead. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this relic works really well with not just this unit, but this unit over here. So the idea is every aspect of the list synergizes or works with every other aspect of the list. And in my mind, that is what's going to take that list above other lists that are built on those same building blocks. Because they all have the same building blocks, but this one now has better, more synergy, more connective tissue to really excel it above. Yeah. And that's how I build it. That's literally, that is my foundation. I don't even start looking at units until I know what synergies that I plan on taking advantage of. And once I know those synergies, then I literally start putting building blocks in to make those synergies happen. I know it sounds insane, but that's my method. (laughs) Well, no, I think that that actually touches on a very important point. Um, You know, obviously synergy is very strong, but a very common mistake I see in people who design lists is that they will have one unit that combos with one stratagem very well, but then nothing else really works together. You want yeah. to design your list, as Josh said, like like building blocks, like Legos. What's so great about Legos that makes them different from so many other toys is that any Lego can fit to any other piece. Yep. They're universally connective. And in a list, you ideally want your stratagems or your key stratagems and your sort of key components to be universally connective in that way. Yeah. Um, each of those pieces should be ideally good on its own. You you don't want to take a subpar unit just because it happens to have a nice stratagem to go with it. Um, but you also want each of those pieces to fit together with the other pieces to do interesting things. Yeah, no. And that is a a part of my list design that happens later. It's more of, I build the initial, like, idea, as silly as it is, and I'll try to find synergies that make it work better as I'm building and refining. But that's how I get the inspiration. Well, and I don't think any of us ignore the parts that uh, the other people do. Um, certainly I've spent plenty of kind of introspective time at work or when I'm out on a walk or something. 
thinking about lists in the same way Shaylin does. Mm -hmm. And Lord knows I've poured over the books and reread the stratagems for the umpteenth time the way Josh does. Right. <laughs> uh, I think I think all of these are strategies that we use, but also things that we all use to greater and lesser degrees. So talking about synergy a little further, because I think this is something that is really, really important, is making sure that you do have all of the parts of your list working together, because yes. that is very critical. Um, That's I, why my present list is the way it is. Yes. Uh, Shaylin runs a very aggressive list using Grey Knight Interceptors and Seraphim and other fast-moving assault units or short-range units. It, it has, it has a fast-moving Alpha Strike is one of the abilities it has. It's one yes. of the few remaining true Alpha Strike lists in the game. And the reason we built it the way we did is because we needed to include Grey Knights, and the best unit in Grey Knights is the Interceptor. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of fundamentally informed the list that said, okay, we have a fast-moving alpha strike unit everything else in the list needs to follow up on that yeah because setting them in by themselves is a great way to get them suicide yep right and by the same token uh one of the tau lists i've been running recently is very heavily focused on sort of medium weight firepower lots of strength five strength six strength seven and one of the things that i kind of consistently keep with it is you know you need to have Units that are supporting each other, literally in the Tau case, with for the greater good. Um, and that means that I have to avoid including things that can't provide that support. Like, I don't have any Hammerheads in my list, because the Hammerhead is actually a great tank, but it can't use supporting fire to protect other units in the army. So those points I spent on a Hammerhead are not spent on a Riptide or something else. Yep. And I imagine it's very similar for the Harlequin list that you're using, mm -hmm. Josh, because if you're if you're playing Harlequins, you're a pretty fragile little set of elf bodies already, so you would better be throwing as much at the wall as you can. Yes. Ironically, the, the entire list that I've been running, uh, I, I tried writing it as an ultra-aggressive, like, just, you know, rush fast and, and, and pound them. But ironically, the success I've had more than anything with them initially is actually running them as a beta strike list. Is mm -hmm. uh, you, you almost, I, I guess it's kind of fitting fluff-wise, but you almost, I almost run them as a, I, a cat and mouse game. Mm -hmm. I want my opponents to chase me. I want them to come after me. I want them to come get me. And because of the terrain layouts, a lot of tournaments are running now because there are more line of sight blockers, more more things to hide behind. I actually run this very fast, small, fragile army that just dances around the table for the first turn or two, trying to get my opponent to overcommit to a certain part. So then all of a sudden you can kind of jet out and lash out, and all of a sudden you you know they're now spread out, and you're trying to hit them at like this three, four, five prong attack. And you try and cripple them from the like you know crucial crucial points and stuff like that, and it's it's actually been working better as a beta strike list than it did as an alpha strike, which is completely counterintuitive to what I thought it would be. <laughs> it's it's been really weird to see it actually w start working and growing on the table. Yeah, no, and that's one of the things I I enjoy about certain kinds of list styles is they the flexibility is another concept in list building is yeah can it do alpha yes can it also do beta also yes right exactly yeah right well and and that's actually something that uh is also very important um when you're building a list and you're putting together these these synergies 
Just because a particular unit is good does not mean it's good in the army you're building. Exactly. Uh, it's very easy to simply... And some units are so good they should probably go in every army that can afford them. Um, something like the Plague Burst Crawler is kind of an easy offender here. Mm -hmm. It's something that Nurgle has very little access to, and it's incredibly efficient at it, it's incredibly resilient. So, if you're building a list that has a Death Guard detachment, you probably should take play three Plague Burst Crawlers. Yeah. Um, but, don't allow yourself to fall into the trap of doing that mindlessly. That just because a unit is good, it should go in every single list, because you may find that one Nurgle list that doesn't want Plague Burst Crawlers. You may find the Eldar list that has no interest in Shining Spears or Wave Serpents or Hemlocks. Most of the books out there, and especially the, the latter releases of the Codexes, have a lot of good units in them, and you need to be able to distinguish between what is a good unit and a good unit in your list. Exactly. Actually, uh, touching on Shaylin's army again, the Grandmaster Dreadknight. Great, um, great unit. I love him. I, I, for a long time, I ran them for years, and it's like, they don't fit anymore. Yep, they because they, they're not fast enough to keep up with the rest of your army. Yeah. And they I are... Also, they get shot. Well, they're the only non-infantry unit in the army you are running currently. So they would draw all of the anti-tank firepower at the same time, which is not a great place to be even when you have a three-up invulnerable. That's an example. Um, the flip side of that, I think, would be the uh, concept that Josh had brought up a little bit before we were talking all of this. Uh, the idea of diminishing returns on some ah, units. Yes. Because you certainly want to have all of your units kind of working together and doing one thing, but at a certain point, your one thing gets a lot less valuable. Because, you know, you can buy a lot of upgrades and a lot of auras and a lot of stratagems that will all help you do one thing better and better and better, but sometimes you stop needing that so much. Yes, very much. At some point, it just gets to ask the question of, well, how many more resources am I putting in to make this get that little bit better when it's really not actually getting me that much? Yeah. Um, um, Gilliman is actually, I think, kind of a unit like that. I don't see him at top tables very often because he is a lot of points committing into this buffing aura thing. Yeah. Uh, the idea of over-investing into a single plan can be very dangerous. Uh, the example that Josh had talked about was Imperial Guard with a, a Shadow Sword. It's like, and you can get that the Trojan support vehicle and the Salamander command vehicle, and then, you know, you put Yarrick next to it, and this and that and the other thing, and, you know, you want to spend your 500 points of guardsmen buffing that one vehicle you can, and that does make the Shadow Sword really good at killing things, but then your opponent's Castellan shoots your Shadow Sword, and what are those 500 points of units doing? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What are they doing now? You've got 500 points of support for what? Yes, and, and this comes back around to that idea that you need the different pieces of your list to each fit together individually, because if they kill your Shadow Sword, then what do you do? And if you have another vehicle you can buff with those units, that's one thing, but if the Shadow Sword is all you have, then that might not be enough. Well, I was also going to say, an another thing to do is understand what role a unit does, and if a unit can perform multiple roles, it's in general a stronger unit. Right. 
uh, is an observation I have. It, flexibility is good. Uh, redundancy is also super important. Yeah, uh, but it, these are just things you need to keep in mind is uh, when you're selecting these building blocks for your synergies and stuff, does it do something else? Or does it just do this one thing stupid well? Because yes. doing one thing stupid well is okay, but you need to understand that that's a restriction in its own funny way. Right. Well, if you're only doing one thing, then you have to look at the way you, those points you're spending differently than if the unit can do multiple things. Yes. Um, something like a Castellan is a, a gigantic shooting threat, but it's also actually pretty good at scoring an objective uh, because your opponent doesn't typically want to walk right up next to it. And it's also incredibly resilient. That's essentially doing three different things for its point cost, which is why you can justify that point cost. Whereas... You know, many other units, like a Shadow Sword, not nearly as resilient, but costs not that much less than a Castellan. Um, and by the same token, you have a unit like Devastators, where it's like if you spend 600 points on Devastators, you will have firepower comparable to a Castellan, especially if you've gotten all the buff auras and everything around them, but you certainly won't have the resilience comparable to it. True story. Very true. The last thing I wanted to touch on here before we hit the, the kind of the second half of the episode is looking at the tools you have available to you, because this is a really easy blind spot to pass over, and I think it's something that a lot of people get caught on. 8th edition, more than probably any previous edition, gives you an immense amount of flexibility in how you can combine different things together. There are all of those core detachments. There's, what, like 10 or 12 of them? Lots. Um, quite a lot of different basic detachments from the patrol to the battalion to the brigade and all of the Force Org-specific ones that every army and every single faction has access to. And you have all your allies that you can fit into each of those different detachments in addition to the detachment that you're taking for your sort of main force. And don't forget that you have allies built into your codex, too, because you can always take stuff from your codex but with a different sub-faction. Mm -hmm. And all of those are tools you have available to adjust your list and get access to things you wouldn't have otherwise. You know, if you're bringing those world eaters with your Chaos Space Marines, and you're going to be throwing a whole bunch of units into your opponent's face, you're kind of going to be lacking for backfield scoring, so maybe you should look at taking a battalion of Alpha Legion or of Nurgle Demons so that you have some backfield scoring. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I think that covers pretty much everything in the first half of our episode. Easily. We're going to go ahead and make a resupply trip to our logistics department, and then we're done with that. We'll catch you all on the back half and talk a little bit about how you check off all those boxes we talked about earlier. Gamers, are you looking to do conversion of your dreams but just can't find the right bits? Probably because they don't exist? Gaiman with a top hat? Magnus with a pimp cane? Mortarian playing chess? Well, those dreams can become reality with Vritaforge, a design and 3D printing studio that can make the bits you've always wanted to happen, happen. Vritaforge can be found through Facebook, that's V-R-E-D-A, F-O-R-G-E, like Forge Worlds, 
Contact her, and she can design custom bits, parts, in any number you desire, from one to a million. Verita Forge. Make all of your wargaming bits dreams come true. Hey everyone, are you looking for great competitive games of Warhammer 40k that you can watch while also donating to a charity for kids in need? If so, you should check out the Charity Hammer 40k Marathon stream, hosted by Best in Faction Podcast and Knights at the Game Table. It will be 48 continuous hours of two separate Twitch streams of some of the best players in the country playing games against each other, including Nick Nanavati, John Lennon, Jeff Robinson, Colin Sherman, myself, and Mitch Pelham, as well as many, many more. The stream will be free for everyone to view, but we do ask that viewers who can manage will donate something to the Child's Play charity, and for those who aren't able to watch the games live, as they'll be happening starting on January 4th and continuing all the way through the 5th, everything will be archived for those of you who want to come back later and watch for a nominal fee. Beyond just the games, we'll also have interviews, chats, discussions, and just good old-fashioned storytelling, as well as a, perhaps a few games of Beer Hammer for those looking for something a little bit less serious. So please... Give whatever you can, and check out and tell your friends about the Charity Hammer 40k Marathon stream, available on both Facebook and elsewhere. And welcome back. That was really loud. <laughs> oh, it's the resupply airport. Okay, alright. Look, we don't put the airplane sounds into the actual podcast. Other people don't have to listen to those. That's that's a courtesy to our listeners, you know? So, we talked a little bit earlier about checking off boxes uh, and kind of making trade-offs and all that sort of thing, but what, what, why don't we list out some of the boxes that we each personally look at when we're putting a list together? Josh, you want to you wanna put out the first couple for us here? Yeah, um... A couple big ones that I always look at is how many phases of the game am I engaged in? Mm. And that, that's a big one. You know, am I running a list that is only engaged in one phase of the game? If so, yep. then I need to make sure that I am either doing that one phase better than anybody bar none, mm -hmm. or I need to find a way to engage more. And, and I'm not just talking like shooting in combat. I mean, there's multiple phases of the game. There's movement phase, psychic phase, shooting phase, assault phase. Those are all phases of the game. Yep. And then and then periodically I'll even count the morale phase as a phase, depending on the aspect of the list I'm running. Yeah. And But those big four are the ones that you really, if you have, there's four main things. If your list is only engaging in one of those four and your opponent's list is engaging in all four of those four, inherently you're at a disadvantage. Yep. And so that is that is something I check. I've got movement phase. I have psychic phase i have shooting phase i have assault phase and obviously there are some armies out there that just don't even have the option like i'm running necron psychic phase is an option i'm running tau psychic phase isn't an option you know and even as such even with tau arguably assault phase isn't an option either <laughs> exactly even with tau the assault phase really isn't a major play for them so at that point they need to make sure the movement phase and the shooting phase are going to dominate for them and carry them through the two phases that they're pretty much not engaged in. And so that's that's a major point on my list. That's probably one of the first major aspects of list design for me is 
those four phases, am I engaging in them? And if I'm not, why? And is it is it comparable? Am I compensating enough for that lack? And the second big one for me is uh, this one's actually a uh, I can't even take credit for this. I got to give it where it's due is actually out of uh, Sun Tzu's Art of War um, is actually what taught me this. Ironically, of course, applicable in a Warhammer game, right? <laughs> there are three different uh, engagement distances that you will always need to be aware of when you are trying to engage the enemy, short, medium and long range. And if you are only focused on one of those ranges, it's kind of the same concept of the, the different phases of the game. Mm. If you're only focused on one of those ranges and you can only engage your, your enemy at one of those ranges and your opponent can engage you in a different one of those ranges, they will use that to their advantage. Mm -hmm. So, example, I've got short range, meaning in Warhammer game, I consider short range 12 inches or less. That's what I consider short range. All right, medium range is that 12 to 30 or 36 inch range. That's that's that mid range, you know. Really, ideally, the 24 inch range armies, yeah, Necrons, Bolter, Fire Marines. That's kind of that mid range uh, distance band gap. And then anything that's over 24 inches, you know, heavy weapons, so on and so forth, that's long range. And if I'm running an army that can only, that really only engages well at 24 inches, meaning I'm running like a rapid fire army or whatever, then I'm not really using that close range. I'm not really using that long range. That gives my opponent a very fine, gives me a fine window of being able to engage my opponent optimally and gives my opponent larger windows to be able to avoid my optimal damage output. And so something I learned from Sun Tzu's in, in the reading is, can you engage your opponent at all three of these range bands? And if so, how, you know, different levels of, of you know, uh, strength or weakness or whatever. But those are the two big ones. Those are huge for me. And, and I, those are the first two things I look at in a list when I'm designing is, can I engage in these three different distances and am I engaging my opponent in as many phases of the game as possible? 90% of the time, if I get most of those checkboxes checked, that's most of my list right there. Yeah. Personally, I actually come at things from a, a very different perspective, is I look at the resources I have available. Uh, the, one of the first things I look at when I'm sort of checking off boxes on an army is, how many command points do I have? Because command points are so critical to the game... And the stratagems are so critical to the game because you look at the armies that are doing really well these days, it's usually armies that have good stratagems and that have good ability to use stratagems. So one of the first things I look at is how many command points do I have available and what can I spend them on? Which units do I have stratagems that I can activate? Where do I recycle my command points? All that sort of thing. And the second thing I look at, which is... A little bit like the what Josh was talking about, but actually approaches it from a very different perspective, is what's my firepower like? How much damage can I deal, and how much damage can I take? Um, and that typically breaks down into a number of different categories. I use a lot of the online math hammer calculation tools uh, to figure out, like, how many guardsmen can I kill? How many tanks can I kill? How much damage can I deal to a knight? How much damage can I take if something shoots at me? Because I think that in while the game is certainly decided a lot by movement and scoring and all that sort of thing, a lot of lists win and lose by how much damage they deal to the enemy. Very true. I actually look at it, there's, uh, there's things an army needs to do. It needs to score objectives, mm -hmm. which means it needs to stay around to score objectives. Yep. 
um, or be cheap enough in the back to be ignorable, because that's a certain kind of staying around ability. Right. Um, it needs to be able to get places, so it needs mobility. Mobility is incredibly important. Um, and as Sean says, it obviously needs firepower on some level, or very, very high resistance kind mm -hmm. of deal, because those are often things you trade for one another. Yes, you're, uh, you're typically gaining one, losing the other. So I, I look at the game of, okay, well, I look at the mission, I go, what is this mission making me try to do? Well, I need to score objectives, and I need to get to the objectives to score them. And smack my opponent along the way enough that I can survive later, mm -hmm. basically. Uh, so I look at a unit and say, what kind of solutions is this unit providing me? towards those problems that all lists have to fix. Yeah. I think I think that idea of what is what solutions do this unit provide me is actually a very important one. Um, because if you're designing a list, then you typically know what the meta is looking like, what sort of lists are popular. And you should look at your army and say, okay, how do I deal with this? Uh, for example, when I build a, a Tau army, I look at like, okay... I know custodes exist. What happens when a squad of Dawn Eagle jet bikes declares a charge on my army? How do I get out of that okay? And what happens if I have first turn or second turn against them? Looking at those solutions to various problems you know are going to exist is incredibly important. What do I what do I do when I see a Castellan across the table? Can I deal with that? How do I deal with that? Exactly. Um, and. And meta solutions is another aspect of this. Like, mm -hmm. I do have solutions to things. My list presently struggled against knights, and that's one of the reasons I did not do as well as SoCal. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing you need to be looking at when you're putting together a list, is how you solve those problems. And ideally, uh, finding a good solution to those problems is one of the ways you start building a list. Is you, you look at a thing and say, oh, if I take this detachment, I can kill a knight with just these, you know, five units or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that can be a starting point for a list right there. Uh, because if you have a good solution to a portion of the, the meta, then you can really start to make a list. It's like, okay, I take these five units and they kill a knight, and I take this these units here and they deal with Eldar, and all of a sudden I'm beating two of the hardest matchups in the game right now. Exactly. And... Uh... Some units have some pretty unique solution fields that other armies just don't get to use. Mm -hmm. Right now, interceptors are still able to charge through impassable terrain. So there's that's a solution aspect, an angle I can do, is an example. Very true. Um, so let's say you've you've put all of this together and you've you've made yourself a, a list. How do you decide whether you actually keep that list? Because this is something I've actually run into a lot of times, is I will write a list and put it all together, and I look at it, and it's garbage. Uh, there's, obviously, as Sean demonstrated, self-check. Right. Um, and then there's the whole, hey, Sean, I have this idea. Is this a dumb idea or a good idea? And I show him the list, and he'll tell me very bluntly whether or not he thinks it's a good idea. Well, having that peer group is is very important. Uh, all three of us, I know, share lists with each other and other foot people we know. And there's uh, also Facebook groups for that as well. Yes, um, which are of varies, which are of yeah varying quality. Um, well, I'm gonna be super duper honest right here, guys. Most of the 40k Facebook groups are not very good at 
processing lists. Some of them are. Um, I'm, I'm talking specifically about the sort of big open ones that have a few thousand members, the 40k competitive and things like that. Not trying to knock those groups, they can provide you a lot of good service, but if you are trying to build a high-level competitive list, it's it's the law of numbers. Most people in those groups are not above-average players, and you need to be talking to other above-average players if you want to build an above-average list. Uh, another thing you might pursue is the not-a-body service, for example. He can certainly be useful there. Um, Nick is obviously a very talented player, um, so his advice in building a list is very useful. But I think really the, the core thing we need is find someone else to look at your list. Um, because if you have just spent half an hour or an hour or five hours uh, writing the list out, then you are not going to be able to objectively assess it very well. Uh, anything I do, actually, is I set the list aside and come back to it a week later. Absolutely. Is a um, or even just a day or two later. Um, but give yourself a little bit of space so that you can come back and look at it with fresh eyes. That makes a huge difference. It's not as good as having another person, but it's a lot better than just continuously staring at it. Because uh, the list that you thought sounded unbeatable and just full of amazing stuff, you know, if you may come back to it a few days later and say, wow, I have no way to score objectives. Oops. Yes, I've, I've made a non-negligible objective scoring choice. I'm like, well, I'll dump these three things and, oh, look, I have A more command points and B backfield units. Yes. So, yeah, you, we, I mean, Josh talked a lot about sort of playing the different phases of the game, but you really do need to look at, you know, can you deal with a melee unit, either by shooting it off or by killing it in Overwatch or by killing it with your own melee? Do you have the resilience to not just die if the other guy gets to shoot at you or if they get yeah. to charge you? Because yep. that's, that's a real easy problem to have is, like, you got to look at, like, you can't just assume that your units will be alive all game long because the other guy's got an army too. And they're going to be... I assume my units will not survive very long. Well, typically. That's like the other the other player is trying to kill all your stuff. Mm -hmm. So looking at like, okay, you know, what happens when Castellan shoots my army? Or what happens when, you know, 6,000 Sun Psychers start casting smites onto me? That's you. You need to look at how your firepower degrades and how it's affected. If you have the screening units to protect them, if you have the ablative bodies or some other kind of special ability to mitigate that damage. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the entirety of how most Death Guard and Nurgle lists tend to function. Is they may not have a lot of firepower, but you you just you can hit them all day long and it doesn't do anything to them. Exactly. Exactly. Something in the Necrons used to be Excel at as well, and I'm hoping, fingers crossed, with chapter approved, that we might see more of as well, that they have that, that same resiliency. Yes. Uh, there certainly are different kinds of lists. Eldar lists, oddly, can get that same sort of thing. Or it's like, if you're a minus two or three to hit, or you're a wave serpent, or you have any of these other things, then that can go a long way towards mitigating the resilience. But make sure you know what you're resilient against, because not all resilience is equal. Yeah, uh, no. As I point out, interceptors, like, I can charge their impossible terrain. Well, if they can't see me, they can't shoot me. It's true. Mobility was another one we haven't discussed a lot. 
um, know that there are different kinds of mobility. Yes. The ability to deploy onto the field through deep strike or something is one kind of mobility, but for most units like that, once they're on the ground, they're just as slow as anything else. Exactly. Um, and then there's other types of mobility, such as e even if a unit doesn't move very far, but if it ignores intervening models and terrain, that can be a lot of mobility right there. Yes, absolutely. Um, as Shaylin had talked about earlier, we're, we're living in a world where their tournament terrain is often a lot more line of sight blocking and a lot more intervening, and the ability to pass through a big piece of terrain that other units can't easily cross over is really, really important. You know, even if you only move eight inches, if you have fly, that eight inches might count for a lot. Exactly. And uh, things like Inari Silver Sting, um, where you get to move twice, can add a lot more mobility to a unit. Yes. Multiplicative mobility is pretty big. Oh, yeah. Via stratagems or whatever. Yeah, and, and that's the key right there, too, is being able to uh, not just look at the linear aspect of, well, I have this unit, it moves this far each turn, blah, blah, blah. It's it's not looking at it from such a linear perspective, but again, kind of like we were talking about earlier, is learning how to utilize the synergies to your advantage. Yeah, I've got this unit of Zangors, 20 Zangors is a prime example. They have their basic movement and they can charge, yada, yada. But I've also got Dark Matter Crystal that I can use to bounce the thing across the table at some point. The unit, all you know, uh, I've got Warp of Time where I can get an extra movement phase out of them. Mm -hmm. um, you can pop their strat to pile in and swing again. Yep. These are all elements that can allow that unit to move significantly further in a single turn. And so it's not just the aspect of they have a seven inch move. Oh, yay. You know, it's what can you do to expand their versatility in that mobility? And again, like armies like Eldar or whatever, and like you mentioned earlier, don't make it to where, okay, I've got these strats and these powers that only work on this one Zangor unit. Because then if you lose that, you're wasting that support. Make it so it's useful on everything. Like Eldar, well, I've got Shining Spears, or I've got Guardians, or I've got, I've got multiple avenues to make all of those stratagems and these psychic powers and these relics all useful. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then that's really what's going to, that's, that's really what's going to make your quote unquote mobility shine. Mobility or anything, really. Yeah, true. That's a concept that applies to almost anything in your army. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, well, I think we've hit all the major points here. If you're if you're putting a list together, you really need to think about those synergies, about checking off all of those boxes you have, and think about what your list's big overall goal is. And if you can bring all of that together, you can actually build a really good competitive list with just about any codex that's out there. Uh, people complain a lot, but honestly, all of the codexes can bring something to the table, even if it's maybe not as good as you might like it to be. Exactly. Uh, I can I can go a little bit above 50% victory with Great Knights, which is mm -hmm. completely acceptable. Yep. You're know, doing pretty well with them. So, announcements for this week. Do either of you have anything you want to bring up in terms of upcoming tournaments you're going to be at or events or other things that you want known? Josh? Um, definitely. I'm sure everyone's getting excited for the chapter approved and leading up for LVO, though. That's kind of the big the big one everyone's excited for. I mean, they thought last year was huge, dude. I think they already, what, over 600 people? Did I hear that right? It's well over that from what I have heard. Yeah. Yeah. They. I, I'm... I am floored. It's massive. I'm almost having a hard time comprehending the amount of people in this one 
event. The champion event alone is just going to be yeah massive. And I will spend a non-negligible time in the ladies' room just hiding from them. <laughs> I'm autistic, and I won't even hide that. Right. If you're looking for Shaylin, I might be hiding in the ladies' room. Not sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's going to be so many people there, you won't have to try to hide very hard. Oh, right, jeez. Because there's going to be people there. Yeah, I my understanding is that the... The, the total event between War Machine and 40K and competitive and narrative and all of that is over 1,500 people. Wow. Which is just absolutely massive. And it's crazy how quickly that that has grown over the last few years. Like, we're seeing more than 50% or nearly double uh, every time. So I'd like to say this. Yeah. Go us as a community. Yeah. Go us. Well, I was just about to say. I mean, Sean, you 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 used to, you went to some of the original BAOs, right? When they were in the barn in Antioch. Oh yeah. That's where the LVO. That's where the idea came from. It was actually, mm-hmm. I think, it was one of the last two BAOs in the in the big like fairgrounds barn in Antioch. I remember being back at that game shop, the local shop there in Antioch, and Reese and Frankie and everyone was all out there. And, and afterwards, and, and you know, they were, they started talking about this idea of like, you know, we should totally do a tournament in Vegas, man. And, <laughs> you know, get the, get the casino together and, and just get a bunch of people down there, flight to be, like, I remember this concept. I mean, that wasn't that long ago. I'm talking like what, maybe four or five years, six years, something like it wasn't that. Um, I think six years ago at this point, it's yeah. the LVO is not old. No, that's the thing is like, I mean, you think about like, like you're talking about, I mean, where this hobby was six years ago, there were, there were people that were, and I, I remember it, all the doomsayers about how 40K was dead. It was dying. It was dead. It was surfing the drain. Yeah. It was done. It's a mass exodus. This hobby's done. And I remember that, that these big conversations, and, and all of a sudden to see to that's where we were, to now we've got 1,500 people in Vegas. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, God, this, this community has really impressed me over the last couple of years. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I am... More excited to be part of this community than I have ever been, and it's it's pretty awesome. Not it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. Also, we are having a growing female players in the meta. Oh yeah. We're starting to see more of them. Even the time I've yeah. been here. Yeah, for sure. As short as it's been. So tournaments aside, I think that is all the upcoming events we mostly have. Um, I'm under least... rock, so don't ask me. If if you don't mind me throwing a shameless plug, actually. Absolutely. I actually have my. Streaming service is Death Studios, uh, aka Death and Friends. If you want to uh, look them up and find it, is there a web address that we, we can give people for that? Yes, I have no idea what it is off the top of my head. Okay, it's that's why I would almost recommend just googling Death and Friends. Oh, YouTube, YouTube Death and Friends. If you search YouTube for Death and Friends, okay, that's probably a good place to find it. That'll that'll probably be a good place to start. We're gonna be uh, we're gonna be uploading them to both Facebook, Patreon. YouTube, and uh, we're possibly going to look at another, uh, we're looking at another outlet place to upload as well. So those are the big ones that we're looking at right now. That's great. Sounds great. And I would like to put a final thanks to our music sponsor here, Dank Muse, who has provided the intro, outro, intermission music for our show uh, as a very generous soul. Heck yeah. And some pretty good Simpsons music if you're into that sort of thing. It's actually pretty awesome. <laughs> I love it. Uh, without further ado, I think that pretty much 
cleans us up for the week here. Next week, we'll be talking about the very first in a new series of uh, podcast episodes that we're going to be doing on analyzing different missions. And we're going to be talking about the ITC Champions missions, which I think is pretty relevant to most everyone who is playing the game these days. Definitely recommend tuning in on that one, guys. That one's going to be a good one. Yeah. So, from me here in the center and my good friend host, Shaylin, over on the left. See ya. And Josh on the right. Catch you guys on the flip side. Thanks for listening. Titan recorded this episode during her Storm Raven ride through the Warp Storm. It was later edited by her hand after her unfortunate return to real space.